Welcome, friends, to Historical AF. I'm Keena. I'm Marie. We are a historian and a special guest delivering you the weird and spooky historical nuggets you never knew you needed in your ear holes. Yeah. This is the religion spot, too. It is. It is. It is. And I'm so excited that you're here because we've talked to you in a mini gab, but you're in seminary to be a full ass priest. A full ass priest. I want that on my driver's license. <laughs> full ass priest. Yeah. <laughs> my bishop would love to hear that. <laughs> yeah. I, um, my previous life, I was, I worked in higher ed for 12 years in student success. Had been feeling kind of a call to ministry and I'm not going to like pull out left behind series every once. So just <laughs> I'll that out right now. I've dealt with the church trauma too. So. Oh, yeah. Good. Well, I think everybody can assume that if you're on this podcast, <laughs> you're cool. I always have to preface that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Like, you're pretty. Well, the church trauma is super real because I know a lot of us grew up and were a little traumatized. So it is kind of a topic because when I told my mom that this was a topic, she was like, why would you do that? <laughs> like my family was really in a, a cultish sect of Christianity and it was to the point they were throwing Bibles at us and calling us non-believers and saying we're going to hell and so we're all very jumpy too about it and I'm like no it's gonna be cool I promise (laughs) Uh, promise there's going to be no Kirk Cameron references yeah you know I, I promise so I quit my job my bishop sent me to seminary my husband lives in Mississippi where he works and so I'm up here in very chilly Tennessee Oh, yes. Uh, Super cold today. (laughs) Super cold. Yeah. God willing and the people consenting this year, hopefully. So, yeah, I don't think we mentioned it's Episcopal. It is. I'm Episcopal. I was raised Southern Baptist. So, complete opposite jump train. Um, Same, same. (laughs) You know, I think it's a theme. Hemlock was raised Southern Baptist too. (laughs) You'd be amazed how many people I go to seminary with that are. Former Southern Baptists, former Pentecostals, former mm. holiness. And we can we start talking about all the different, you know, things we were taught. It's like, oh, no, I got you here. Hold on. <laughs> what are some other classes you've taken? Because you've mentioned some in passing when we've talked, and they are amazing. History of Christian Worship is has been one of my favorite classes I've taken in seminary. Just because you get down to where everything comes from. And why, you know, in our tradition, why we do what we do where it comes from, all that is that was something, you know, growing up, you never could ask questions, right? You just kind of had to do. And so learning the history is great. I'm taking a class right now on theodicy and evil. Ooh. That is talking about suffering in context and like, how can we, you know, all some of the things we hear about suffering, like, you know, oh, God needs another angel. Oh, blah, blah, blah. You know, those platitudes, like that doesn't work. What, where they come from? How do we work with them? That is um, fascinating because, you know, people say that for everything because when my best friend was killed in her early 20s and it wasn't fair, it just so many people kept saying like, well, it was just her time. And I could never wrap my head around. I'm like, why, why would you say that? She was like 22 or, you know, she's in a better place. And I kept on being like, we don't know that. <laughs> it, she had an eight month old baby when she died. I'm like, what? Yeah. 
what kind of justification is that? I know that it's just how people grieve, but yeah, that always got me fired up. I think a lot of it too is how we, like our culture has completely sanitized death to the fact that we don't, you know, in centuries before people died at home, they were laid out at home, cleaned at home. The family did everything at home and then it went out. So you were there to face death and you dealt with it. And now we, you know, have so many ways just kind of push away, not deal with it. Oh, go funeral home. Hey, this day works for me for, you know, my, for the funeral. Yeah, let's do this, blah, blah, blah. And like even funeral homes, which morticians are magicians, because I've been to some funerals and I was like, how did you make them look like that? Thank you. But sometimes they they just look so fake. And, you know, that's one thing I'm wondering about the pandemic, because some funerals have been pushed back because of, you know, rules and stuff like that, that I'm wondering if we're going to change our view on how we handle death with this because we have to walk through grief before we have funerals or memorial services or I've had two really awful deaths in my life and my my first one was my best friend and that was the thing like the funeral and seeing her and it was just and I never processed any of that until years later I had like almost a mental break and had to go to therapy and they're like you never grieved blah 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 because I was so I detached myself from it. Right. But when my dad died, we didn't bury him right away. We we had about six months of just kind of like processing it before we yeah. actually had a service and put him in his little crypt thingy majig. But yeah. yeah, it was two different experiences. Taking a lot of different history classes like Anglican history, church history, you know, liturgics, all those, all those fun things. Part of going to seminary and you have to do what's called clinical pastoral education, which is hospital chaplaincy. And I did that in Hawaii, which was lucky. So I was there for 12 weeks working in a level one trauma hospital in the ICU. So like seeing everything. And then when you're on call, you're called down to the emergency room and you're dealing with death every day, you know, Mm -hmm. and how just all the different cultures that live there and mm-hmm. have come to live there deal with death is so interesting. When, you know, when someone died on my floor or any floor, the nurses called for a condolence cart and someone brought coffee and water and food up to their room and they didn't take the body right away. They were allowed at least four hours with the body before they took it. And so they would come, and it's very traditional in Pacifica cultures to do mo'olele, talk story. And so, like, the family would all show up if they weren't already there and just be, like, brushing their hair or, like, putting their makeup on or, you know, something like that. And talking story with each other about the person while they're still there in that moment. And so the hospital is very aware of that. And because, you know, so many people live on the mainland... Mm-hmm. or live somewhere else, they're used to delaying funerals. So funerals would be months later. And so they had time to process. So when they actually had the funeral, it was like a celebration. Yeah. And the coolest thing they did was how they handled their body donation at the medical school there. Most medical schools, if you've ever read uh, Mary Roach's Stiff about what happens to our bodies when we die, it's really interesting. She talks about like what medical schools do, like they shave the heads. It's very anonymous process when you mm-hmm. give your body to science. The medical school in Hawaii 
what they do is the people, you know, give their bodies. But instead of like doing the shaved heads and all that, they take the students through the cadaver lab and there is a tableau set up next to everybody. This is who this person is. This is their family. This is what they like to do. This is who they were. This is how, you know, so they realized that they were, that a person had given them a gift to learn by giving their body. That's beautiful. And every year the medical students and the families of those who gave their body come together and do a memorial service for all the families who their loved ones gave their bodies and they do it at the ocean. And it's so beautiful. That experience has really kind of helped me really shape and form like how I see death and how I want to minister to people with death, you know, dealing with death or any crisis. That is so beautiful. I had no idea, but I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just in a clergy conference today and we were talking about how, you know, sometimes the church does not prepare us well to work with grief and death Mm -hmm. and that we need to be okay to tell people like, this sucks. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. This is like, it may not get better for a little bit and that's okay. You know, that is okay. Have your Sally Field and still Magnolia's moments as many times as you need to. No, I love that. I love the idea that you guys are learning things and that you're going to be able to help people. And uh, one of the, Biggest things I've ever learned is how you have to sit in your grief because everybody wants to get out of it and they want to just move through the stages as fast as possible. But you just have to like sit in it and you have to feel it and you have to, you know, process it. I lost a uh, friend in September. We think she completed suicide. And, you know, that was difficult being up here and not being able to be like in the things of grieving. And she was a a member of our community at one time. So it was a big grief up here. And so... Mm -hmm. That that death has made me really have to walk through that because you couldn't be there. You couldn't be a pot. You couldn't do anything mm-hmm. like that. So, yeah, like grief is grief sucks, but you have to walk through it. There's no mm-hmm. way around it. Yeah. So. And you have to just be patient because it, you know, you have your stages of grief and everybody thinks it's just like a one after the other. But no, you bounce back and forth and you're all over the place and you might be OK one day and then you go back and. A friend calls it goth for God. This was all <laughs> like, you know, deal with the memento mori and all that. So that's always been like my whole take on things. Yeah. Like, what do you do with death? You know, who knows? Maybe that's a way of process- processing childhood trauma. Who knows? But yeah. Oh, it possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why we're all spooky bitches, all our childhood trauma. Oh. <laughs> it, it might check out. <laughs> what is your plans? Do you want to be a priest? Like, what do you want to do with it once you finally? Well, I feel called to um, lead a church. So right now, that's the plan we're hoping. You know, but it's one of those things that you, you keep open because you never know how the spirit moves, right? Yeah. Maybe I have friends who have decided up here, like, you know what? I think I want to do another year of hospital chaplaincy. I want to do, you know, residency or I'm feeling called to school chaplaincy or I'm feeling called to something else. So, and I also have friends you know, Rachel's one that's like, I'm feeling called to like, you know, do some further academic studies before I go in to do, you know, ordination. So there's all kinds of like calls that you can have. But for me, I feel called to lead, to lead a church, but we'll see what happens. You know, you just kind of have to be open to whatever. 
That's amazing. And for context, I don't think we mentioned Rachel is in seminary with Marie and she mm-hmm. was also a Patreon. And I think, yeah, she's been on a mini gap too. So that's who we're talking about. I just realized we we're just saying her name and didn't say who she was. Who the hell is that? Yeah. Oh. Uh, now that's really exciting. And will you go back to Mississippi? Yes, that is the plan right now. If they can handle me. Has that been an issue? Do you find people feel a certain way about you being a woman going into this? Oh, yeah. I did my aunt's funeral a year ago in December. Uh, it was already a thing because they weren't honoring her wishes and I was just getting pissed off. So, in Reform, Alabama, anyone who knows where Reform, Alabama is, <laughs> a funeral there. Not officially endorsed by the Episcopal Church, just a funeral home. Not that. I have to say that because I'm not ordained yet. Yeah, the other pastor, it was there was my grandmother's pastor and who's Southern Baptist. And I walked in, you know, to introduce myself. My grandmother goes, preacher, this is my granddaughter and she's going to seminary being Episcopalian. I need you to fix her. Oh, no. Really? Okay. I'm the only grandchild you've had that hasn't been in jail. (laughs) My brothers, let's talk about this. Afterwards, he didn't know my aunt at all, except for like one thing. And you know, she'd been an addict and had some other things. So I talked about how we have to have grace with that. And we can't judge like, yeah, she did some really shit things in her life. Mm-hmm. But we also work through that grief and that frustration, that anger we may have had with her. And also mm-hmm. with ourselves that we didn't want to talk to her about it. You know, and just work through that. And his whole thing was like, well, I just met her to bring her to Jesus. And I was like, girl. <laughs> that sounds about right for us. And at the end, I walked up to him and like his wife came up and shaked my hand. And he like just looked at me would not shake my hand. And I was like, oh, oh. this is how we're doing this. Well, that's very godly of them. <laughs> very- and, well, and I've heard lady preachers like, oh, oh so you're going to be a lady preacher. I was like, I didn't realize preachers came in forms and yeah labels. the best meme i've seen was a tweet from someone and she's a priest and she was wearing her collar and a guy walked up to her and was like are you a lady preacher and she said yeah and he goes well i don't believe in lady preachers and she said well i'm standing right here so <laughs> and so i'm like I'm going to encounter that. I know that. But. Yeah. Like, good yeah. news. I'm proof they exist. Like, look, I'm here. You learned something today. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. Really? Wow. People are intense. <laughs> we are funny, funny creatures. We are. We are. Yeah. <laughs> I figured that would be a, like, a hurdle. But, I mean, also, like, you know what you were called to. And you know this is the thing for you. And yeah, people's judgments, that's on them, not on you. So. Exactly. Just got to keep doing you. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I find when I do things that piss people like that off, it just empowers me. <laughs> like it fuels like my Elwood's montage, right? You watch the Elwood's power montage whenever you need to like be picked up. It's like, I'll show you how valuable Elwood's can be. So yeah. yeah like just let it fuel you. Their tears. Drink their tears. You know, the tears of the patriarchy. Um, yes. <laughs> well, do we want to jump into it? Because I know both of us have. We're too excited. Oh, yeah. Like, we've already, like, rambled for almost an hour. So, sorry, Land. We got, like, really deep in, like, sunshine topics. I know. I'm so excited, though. I'm just so fascinated. (laughs) But I'm also so excited about what you're talking about. (laughs) I promise this is going to be cooler. So, I have weird this week. 
And I'm talking about relics. Yes. Because I, like I said, God's for God, love, have always been interested in like incorrupt bodies, you know, such and such as tongue is hanging out over here. You know, their arm is over here in this place. Like, why? All right. So relics. The word relic actually comes from the Latin word relincare. R-E-L-I-N-Q-U-E-R-E. I didn't take Latin, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but that means to leave behind. Oh. So relics are things that have been left behind by saints, holy people, religious figures. I mean, some people would even consider the bodies of linen as a relic. Um, so yeah, so relics, I think a lot of people think of them in a very Christian context, Mm -hmm. but there's actually a much bigger context to that. So the tradition of relics in Christianity actually goes back to the early martyrs in the persecutions. You can look at such narratives about martyrdom, like the martyrdom of Polycarp. It sounds like a fish. It's not. (laughs) You know, and talking about how, like, after he died, people were running out to where he died and, like, sopping up the blood, you know, because they thought it would bring a miracle. Random fact about Polycarp's story, people said it smelled like bread when he was set on fire. (gasps) (laughs) Don't read that narrative while you're baking bread. Just saying. Perpetua and Felicity, that's another narrative. Perpetua and her slave Felicity. That's just the reality of it. Both persecuted for being Christians. Same thing. And so we have Roman Catholicism classifies relics in three classes. First class relics are things that are either associated directly with Jesus Christ, like the crown of thorns, which Mm -hmm. is in Nishram. I'll show you a picture of that in a minute. But also body parts. Body parts of a saint or holy person are are considered first-class relics. Ooh. This became an interesting situation when John Henry Newman was canonized. Last year? Year before last. Because when he died, he wanted his body put in lime. So that way it would decompose faster because he was worried people were going to try to come take relics. Wow. So, and when you're up for canonization, that is one of the things they look at is your relics. They examine your body, stuff like that to make sure either you're incorrupt. Is there an odor of sanctity? All those things. Well, I guess I just didn't realize that this is a contemporary thing. The fear of being relic. I I guess I've distanced this in my brain. So that's fascinating that even if you're like, if I'm going to be a saint, please don't chop me up. (laughs) Don't shut me up. Yeah. And so, like, one of the things at the canonization ceremonies is that they present relics of the saint, you know, to the Pope. Happy day. So they were able to find a lock of his hair. So that was the relic they were able to present first class. But they were not, you know, there were no bones or anything like that. So John Henry Newman's an interesting guy. My church history professor is, like, one of the big scholars on him. Able to learn, he got to go to the canonization and sit near Prince Charles because of his like. Wow, pretty cool. So, what a um, mic drop! <laughs> I know, right? It's like my dude is British, and he know who gets to go to a canonization. It was weird because like he got invited to that, and then got invited to a big conference on Newman right after that. So he went to Rome, 
and I went to England and he was, they had this meeting in the exchequer's quarters and they had the chain of like the, you know, exchequer in the table. And like, that was the same chain that Thomas More wore when he was uh, Henry VIII's exchequer and stuff like that. So he was like, I'm sitting there and looking at like Thomas More's stuff. And Thomas More also is saying, I'll have a story about his head later. Um, so, uh, I have you have of, my attention. I have a lot of heads in this. I'm sorry. There's just a lot of heads. So, yeah. So that's a first class relic. Your body. It's okay. either Jesus or your body. Hagiography is the study of saints. So, like, whenever someone becomes a saint, someone writes a big flurry story about them, especially like medieval times, Renaissance, about their deeds and their life and all of that to be an inspiration, basically. And so one of the things about Catherine of Siena is that the Virgin Mary, um, she was visited by the Virgin Mary and Jesus and given a wedding ring of Jesus's foreskin to be the bride of Christ. (gasps) Is there a way to politely say I'm good to something like that? I mean, but it is, it is Mary though. So I'm sure. It's the Virgin Mary. And so it's kind of like tangent so like the whole thing about like angels like if people like think angels look like precious moments angels angels described in the bible are terrifying oh yeah so many eyeballs wings and eyeballs (laughs) and stuff like that so if one of them came to me hell yeah they needed to tell me don't be afraid because it's like you're you're a flaming winged eyeball what do you want right eyeball eyeball eyeball. (laughs) eyeball of an eyeball um so merch Oh, <laughs> I need to draw one of those. Oh, Lordy. I know, but you've got to like have a thought. Like there had to have been a split second being like, I don't want that on my finger. But you can't say that because it's the Virgin Mary. It's the Virgin Mary giving your her son, you to her son. Yeah. And, and then it's foreskin. My other thought, my first thought would be like, how do I poker face this? Because, wow. Second thought would be like, can she read my mind? <laughs> right. Because then you'd be in trouble. Because if you're like, oh, God, no. And then you're like, oh, no. Did she hear that? Yeah, I would be a mess. I, I would be a hot mess with yeah. all that. I'd be like, um, in my humility, I cannot be a bride of Christ. You're like, forgive me. I am startled. So many eyeballs. I need a moment. <laughs> the blue is so blue. I'm in trance. Um, <laughs> Mary and blue, it's a thing. Your second class relic is something that was worn oh, by a saint or holy person or something they used. So, like, one example is St. Peter's Chains in Rome. There's a church, um, St. Peter's Rome. Uh, not St. Peter's Basilica, but St. Peter's in Chains. Do you want to see all these lovely pictures as we're going? Join Patreon. So, this is um, the oh. Chains of St. Peter. In the Basilica di San Pietro in Vincoli in Rome. Okay. These would be considered a second class relic because these are things that this is something that he wore. Well, that's cool. So first, second class relics. Third class is an item that has been touched to either a first or second class relic. So like if you go find a saint card at like a shrine or something like that, you see like there's a little circle with like a little piece of cloth in that. That's considered a third class relic because it's been touched 
to another. Okay. One. My thing has one of those then. Okay. Yeah. So it's a third class. So yeah. So it's still, it's still a classy relic. Mm-hmm. It's just not, you know, body parts or things. Another good example of a second class relic is uh, Mother Teresa's room is like completely preserved. Oh, cool. There. And so, like, you can walk in and see the pencils she used and the bed she slept in. And so, people could hypothetically say those are second-class relics because that's what she used. There's those. This is a long explanation of, like, Christianity and relics. I'm going to show you a couple of relics that have nothing to do with Christianity before we get to severed heads. More than severed heads, like, bodies, all kinds of things. All right. So, I'm going to show you something right now. Here we go. All right. This is Muhammad's footprint. Oh. That is in the Upsultan Mosque in Istanbul. Is it like cast in something? It's cast. So like you see his toes right there. Yeah. But yeah, it's cast in something. I I can't tell if it's like, I think it's a mold of it. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Because some, there are other footprints of Muhammad and they're usually left where they are and shrines built up around them but this is one i think that was actually cast so well that's really cool and then this is muhammad's beard Ooh, oh puppies (laughs) (laughs) this is muhammad's beard hair and that's like one of the biggest relics is it yeah the beard is really important to islam right am i making that up yeah Mm -hmm. it's very important Oh, that's cool. So and where's that at? Did you say? This is in... Doo, 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 where was it from? This is from where it was brought to Moscow. In Istanbul's Topaki Palace Museum. Ooh, I've always wanted to go to Istanbul. Me oh. too. I've always wanted to go to the Hagia Sophia. Oh, yes. Oh. You know, just... We studied that in art history, and I am obsessed. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's gorgeous. Oh, my God. It's so beautiful. So, yeah. Muhammad's beard hair. That's cool. Ooh. This is the inside of the Temple of the Tooth, where Buddha's tooth is. Buddha? Yes. So, you're going to see me. Buddha's tooth. And it keeps growing, which is weird. What? Yes. I was about to say, that looks a little big. It looks like a dinosaur tooth. <laughs> it's so big. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And this is the reliquary that they keep it in. Oh, that's fancy. Very, very golden. Very ornate. Very gold. If, very... if you've seen anything like a Buddhist temple, then that's... Yes. Very, very gold. It's a $62 million temple. That's beautiful. It's gorgeous. I was not aware there was a relic from Buddha, so that just His blew tooth. my mind. Yeah, the tooth. Let's Buddha's see. a cool dude too. Yeah, Buddha. Mm-hmm. Like that was one of the cool things learning about in our world religion class mm-hmm. is all about the different, you know, variances of Buddhism and what they mean mm-hmm. and what they, you know, what they believe. And the tooth is still growing. Any explanation other than just miraculous? I think just miraculous is what what I have been able to find. Someone who is Buddhist may know more. Than yeah, if you do know, email me. I'm interested. But yes, the it's still growing. That's that's really interesting. You know, when I was looking for relics, I was like, oh, Christian relics. And then I was like, here's Buddhist tooth. 
here's what? my weird hair. I'm like, oh, yes. That's cool. That's There's, Anyway, so yeah. So there are a lot of different types, even outside of Christianity. Huh. Well, I just Googled it so I would remember to look at it later. And uh, apparently Buddha was cremated too. And his ashes were divided among his followers. So technically mm-hmm. those would be relics too, right? Yep. That's still the body. Okay. Yep. Ooh, I'm going to. Uh, that later. <laughs> so Joan of Arc, um, her relics, they thought they were in a cathedral in statue of her. And when they examined, because, you know, burned at the stake, that whole thing, they kept her mm-hmm. ashes. When they finally did scientific stuff on them, they found it was a cat and I think a male bone. So oh. it wasn't her, which would go with the historical thing of... Normally, when they burned you at the stake, they just dumped your ashes in the river. Yeah. So. That made more sense. Yeah, there was a lot of, like, especially in Middle Ages, just fake relics. I think, what is that? If everybody that had a piece of the cross was real, it would be so many miles big. and huge. There are so many relics out there of the true cross. And, like, and that came from good old Constantine's mother, who became a saint, St. Helena. So she went and supposedly brought back relics of the true cross, the scourging pillar of Christ. So like the pillar he was like beaten on. Oh, yeah. The crown of thorns, which is in Notre Dame. And so many. I think she may have even brought back the cradle from Jerusalem. Oh, okay. Yeah. And luckily with the fire in Notre Dame, they, that was the first thing people went in to save. Didn't they make like a, yeah, that's when they made like a chain of humans to get in there and grab the the relics and save them. Yes, that's exactly what they did. Relics are important. I mean, you think of big relics that we all know of, like the Shroud of Turin and how much controversy has been over that. Yeah, that one's trippy. Is is that really Jesus's body imprint? Is it not? Yeah. uh, There's been a new study come out in the past few years about the carbon 14 dating before was not as reliable. And they do think it is from the time of Christ. And that's one that's just always kind of weird. But like, you know, when the Turin Cathedral was burning down, that was the first thing they ran in to save was the Shroud of Turin. So, yeah, it's um, really sad how many of those burned down cathedrals. I know. It's like, stop, you know, be responsible with your candle lighting. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a thing. So, I'm going to show you a bunch of dead things. Okay. <laughs> you have my attention. Dead things, dead things. Okay. First, we're going to visit St. Catherine Labore. And she is famous in Catholicism for having a vision of the Virgin Mary. That's her body. She is considered incorrupt. Okay. Um, Incorrupt can mean either, hey, look at me, I'm perfectly good, like, look at me, mm-hmm. or, you know, at the time they were examined for sainthood, they had the odor of sanctity, there were all kinds of things. So, Catherine Labouret, you see this emblem behind her, that's the miraculous medal. Okay. And she had a vision of the Virgin Mary who dictated this medal to her and asked that it be struck. And so, she did. And miracles started happening. And so it's one of the more popular medals you'll find. And she's been dead for, this was 2017. So she's been dead for 148 years. This is what she looked like in real life. She was a daughter of charity. Yeah, she was a daughter of charity. 
You can tell by the big hat. <laughs> Daughters of Charity, like they had the big honking veils. Okay, um, yeah. There's a book called The Habit, and it's all about the history of female religious garments in the Catholic Church. So there's that. Who do we? Ah, Catherine of Bologna. This was the one I was telling you about, Kina. She is 600 years old. Well, at that wow. time, 2014. Now she's 606, and she doesn't look a day over it. Wow. She is considered incorrupt also. I mean, you can kind of tell she's a little mummified, but not what I was imagining. I thought it was going to be, like, way more, like, sunken in. Like, mm. like there's her toes. You can see her toes right there. Yeah. And her hands. Her hands look. But oh my god! Oh wow! Yeah, so that's Saint Catherine of Bologna. Again, she was born in fourteen thirteen. Wow! But uh, yeah, they didn't embalm her or anything like that. So this is that Saint so. Catherine. So if you're ever in the cathedral in Bologna, you will see Saint Catherine. Like, is hey, she girl, like hey. enclosed in anything, or is she just closed in glass? Oh, yes. Okay. So you just walk by her. I have. I act like I've been out of the country and never have. <laughs> but. On all the videos I've watched, you just walk by her and she's there. Okay. Yeah, because I'm sure at this point they're trying to like limit the environmental factors that could cause any kind of decomposition or any kind of wear. Wow. Can you imagine being like a curator for like? I would be like terrified (laughs) all the time that someone was going to break something. Yeah, because if something happened, it's a religious relic. It's not like. I mean, with any historical artifact, you break it. It's, it's like, don't touch it. You know. But it's like, it's different from that guy that put his elbow through a Monet compared to like somebody putting their elbow through a saint. Through a saint, <laughs> right? <laughs> Not Here, good. This is St. Bernadette Subaru. What? And she is also incorrupt. They huh. have put a light coat of wax on her face and fingers. But if you've ever heard of Lourdes... And Our Lady of Lords, which is the big grotto in France. And it is um, a big place known of healing and things like that. She is the one that the Virgin Mary appeared to at Lords and said, dig and you'll oh. find what you're looking for. And so today in the Catholic Church, it is the feast day of Our Lady of Lords. Oh, cool. So we would not have Our Lady of Lords had... Bernadette not seen her. So, and Bernadette died very young. I think she was 26 when she died. And when they pulled her out to look at her stuff, she was incorrupt. Wow. It looks like a Madame Tussauds wax figure. It's so lifelike. And some of them look like really good. And some of them look really bad. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Wow. So interesting. But yes, today is the feast day of Our Lady of Lords. So thanks, Bernadette. I guess we should add that it is the 11th right now we're recording. <laughs> it is the 11th. We're going to get to the feast of the person who actually feast day is coming. Yeah. Today to you is St. Valentine, but we'll get to that. <laughs> So we have a new blessed in the Catholic Church. And this is when they pulled him out of his tomb to check him out. Wow. How long after he passed? Ten years. Ten years? Yes. This is uh, Carlo Octuis. Is he a tracksuit? Huh? 
Is he in a tracksuit? Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, he's buried in the tracksuit of his favorite sports team. Well, that's sweet. Um, it looks like just a sports dude taking a nap. This is insane. It is insane. So they pulled him out on October 1st, 2020. So, you know, when they were getting ready to celebrate his beatification. Uh Uh, Because he's currently blessed that there are states. So you have like servant of God, which is like their case has been opened for sainthood. Uh And then you have venerable, which means, okay, yeah, we're, we're moving along in the sainthood process. You can, you can venerate them now. And then blessed is like, okay, we have one miracle that we can attribute to them. That is not explainable by science. Mm-hmm. So, okay. And then sainthood is when you have two miracles. Okay, yeah. Attributed. And what was his miracle, do you know? That's what we're going to look. Yeah, he's oh. dressed in jeans, sneakers, and a hoodie. Aw. And this is his current tomb. They moved him to a more open tomb now. So that way, you know, people can come venerate because he is a blessed. He was born in 1991 and he died in 2006 um, from leukemia at the age of 15. That's sad. And he was a computer programmer. And so he would evangelize through like computer servers and chat rooms and video games. Wow. Well, that's not a modern right? Thing. I don't know what is. He like started a website and, you know, used that to do all this. So I'm going to show you the, up- that's the up close picture. Oh my gosh. Is that like not crazy? Legit looks like he's taking a nap. That's so crazy. I know. It's nuts. Um, His heart is in a reliquary now. Oh, okay. They wanted to donate his organs, but because he had leukemia, they couldn't. Oh, yeah. So that's why. And that's his mom. Oh. So, and I'm like, how weird is that? That your kid is up for sainthood. Like, what do you do? Right? Yeah, that's. That's wild. I guess I just haven't, like I said, I, I think of this as such a distant thing. I would never have guessed that this would happen last yeah. year. I mean, he was born the same year my brother was, like yeah. just a few months older. So, yeah. And again, so, all the photos will be on uh, the website and or you could just join Patreon and look at it yourself. <gasps> Shameless plug. Okay. Oh, severed head. Okay. Ooh, severed heads. Okay. Severed head. Where's that flower? You got them. Like in a jar. Um, okay. Let me find. That is the head of the infamous that I just told you about, Catherine of Siena. Okay. You got the holy foreskin ring. That's her head. Lucky gal. I know, right? All the all the nice girls get the reliquaries of their heads. So Catherine of Siena is a major um, saint in the Catholic Church. She is well known for rebuking the popes during the Avignon papacy when the popes were fighting about who was actually pope. Yeah. And uh, she sit, wrote many letters. One of her letters said, you bishops of Rome, you reek. You smell like death. <laughs> Ooh, I like her. So I'm like, you feisty. So yeah, so when she died... Her body was stolen and brought back to Siena. So this is the Basilica of San Domenico in Siena. And they have her head out for exposition. So you can go visit St. Catherine's head and say hi. Now, when this comes out, 
Happy Valentine's Day, everyone. <laughs> this is the head of St. Valentine. Wow. Uh, St. Valentine was a martyr. Well, and there are actually three different St. Valentines. So we don't know which St. Valentine this is. Could be, a, you know, the story could be like a conglomeration of all three. Mm-hmm. We don't know. So, but yes, you can tell someone actually took the, the time to write St. Valentine on his forehead. Oh, so we well, that's nice. Though. That's very nice. So yeah, so there's St. Valentine. And where's he at? He's in Rome, Santa Maria in Cosmedini. Okay. So he hangs out in Rome. St. Valentine was a martyr. He would marry Christians in secret when it was illegal to do that. This is the crown of thorns from Notre Dame. So when we talk about, you know, first class coming from Jesus, I mean, how much more can you get? Are there more relics for Jesus that are real or people think are real? This is a whole page of relics for Jesus. This is supposedly the tunic that he was wearing. This is the lance, the holy lance that was supposedly the spear that pierced his side. There's your good old Shroud of Turin. Okay, yeah. And are all of them controversial or do people assume that some are real? I mean, like, because we know historical fact Jesus was a real man. I mean, the speculation is some people don't believe in the divinity of it, but I mean, since he was a real person and we know these things did happen, it's possible that these could be actually. It is. And the church has, one of the things the Catholic church does is they do look at, they try to investigate as much as they can authenticity of Mm -hmm. some things, but they really didn't start doing that until much later. Yeah. Yeah figuratively in church history. So like, we don't know, like there are supposedly three heads of John the Baptist floating around. <laughs> John the Baptist didn't have three heads. So, yeah. and then you have people on eBay trying to sell relics that are like, mm, that sounds like, about right. For you. I'm like, no man. No. So this is one of the relics of the true cross in the uh, church of the Holy Sepulcher. Oh, okay. In, uh, Jerusalem. Neglected to mention not only are relics important in the Catholic Church, they're also important in the Eastern Orthodox Church. So you'll find all kinds of things there. And one of the nails from the, you know, from the cross. There's so many things. Oh, this is a cool one. You'll like this art history person. This is the Scala Santa and the Holy Stairs. These are supposedly the stairs that Jesus climbed to see Pilate. Oh. And legend says that they were brought in the fourth century to Rome by St. Helena. So cool. She yeah. was really busy. I mean, she, girl. I'm just <laughs> saying. So there's that. I have another head for you. This is Oliver Plunkett. Huh. He was, he's more modern compared to Catherine of Siena. He was executed by uh, the Protestant King Charles II. Okay. So he's a Catholic martyr and they tried to throw his head in a fire and his friends rescued it. So when you get up close to it, supposedly there's a scorch mark on the side. Oh, wow. So yeah, you walk in the church in Ireland and like, oh, this is a pretty church. Oh my God, there's a head. If you ever go to this church in, I- in Ireland... There's a head there. And which one is it again? This is the church of in St. in Drogheda, Ireland, St. Peter's. Oh, okay. um, there's a picture. That's the reliquary he hangs out in. That's the side chapel. That's pretty. Where he lives. 
Okay, I was like, I've been to Ireland. I only went to St. Patrick's Cathedral. I didn't go to any other town, but I wonder what their relic is. I'll have to Google that later. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they got one. Okay, this is one of the funkiest ones I've ever run across. The Blood of St. Janarius. Oh. So, St. Janarius, they preserved his blood. This is his blood here hanging out in this happy little vial. And the blood is over 1,700 years old. Wow. And three times a year, it's brought out on the feast day of St. Janarius, on the day his relics were transferred to the current cathedral, and the day, uh, the feast day of the diocese. They bring it out, the bloods are brought out, and when they, and they also have his skull. And supposedly when they sit the blood next to the skull, it will start to bubble. Oh, 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 that's creepy. Three times a year. It doesn't always happen. The times it did not happen include bad things as follows. Oh, gosh. Okay. The beginning of World War One, Two. Oh, my. The blood did not bubble that year. An earthquake in 1980. And then I want to say 42 or 43, 1943, when the war finally came to Italy, the blood didn't bubble that year. Did it, did it bubble in 2020? <laughs> no, it did bubble in 2020. Okay. It bubble in 2020. See, so, it yeah. could have been worse. It could have been worse because St. Janarius did bubble for us. Wow. Yeah. So there Holy is that. Yeah. So that is always like a really weird one because I'm like who is the guy that gets to go yo did the blood blood bubble this year (laughs) okay it's almost like a really morbid groundhog right yeah like you know oh oh girl it did not bubble this year we're in some shit we always want the blood of St. Janarius to bubble everybody keep your fingers crossed (laughs) yeah fingers crossed everyone for you, Kina, I have your favorite that you asked me for. Yes, 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 yes. I knew you wanted her, and she is here for you. Mary oh. Magdalene. Oh, I'm such a fan. I'm a big fan, too. I'll have to send you a picture of my um of my tattoo. Ooh, yes, please. So, yeah, that's her skull. It's like, hey, skull, what's up? This is in France. And this basilica will actually take her relics out and put them on parade. Yeah. I love it. Her feast day is July 22nd. Okay. I think I'm drawn to a lot of the misunderstood women in history and she got kind of a bad rap. The fun thing, too, is that the Vatican a few years ago actually issued an apology for what people always talk about her. Oh, I didn't know that. Because they um, basically said that she was the woman caught in adultery in the Gospels. That mm-hmm. came from a Gregory the Sixth, I think, was the one who's either sixth or the fourth said that. And that was not true. So the Vatican came out a few years ago and were like, hey, yo, sorry about it. <laughs> Our bad. Our bad. We're, I'm going to show you some more. So here's all kinds of different pictures of relics of Mary Magdalene. This is the funky one. Thank you, Cult of Weird. Oh, um, that's the one I've seen. Yeah. Yeah. It looks, Saint Maximin. It looks like that uh the astronaut from Doctor Who. Yes. With the skull and the astronaut helmet. And they take her out. 
they take the reliquary out. They put a gold face on it. So that way it's not creeping out, you know, small children. <laughs> yeah. That there's, you know, a golden lady with a skull face running around. Kind of terrifying. In 1279, supposedly, they found her relics. And this is them carrying her around on her feast day. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. So that's super, super cool. So yeah, she has flowing hair. She has the precious moments angels. <laughs> what um, What are your thoughts? Let's go to Vinci Code. Was she married to Jesus? <laughs> I don't know that she was married to Jesus. I do believe that she was very close to Jesus. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, she's called the apostle to the apostles. Yeah, that's because, what I think. She had to have been so she important. Was, she witnessed the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And the St. Albans Psalter is what my tattoo is based off of. And it's one of the things they have in there is her proclaiming the resurrection to the disciples. And she is there with her hand out and her finger pointing to heaven. And it's her trying to explain it. And, the you know, the disciples are basically mansplaining to her, looking at scrolls <laughs> and stuff like that and not paying attention. So basically, she looks like Nadia Boltzweber calls her the patron saint of showing up. Mm-hmm. Because basically, she's like, look, shut up. I've got something to tell you. Yeah. So that's what I have tattooed. I have her tattooed, like with the hand out, the finger pointing up on my leg. And underneath it, I have persist. Because... People sometimes will not listen to a damn thing you say. Yeah, and she had her own book of the Bible. And I mean, he had to have thought she was so important. And I think that's another reason that she got tarnished was because I mean, they didn't want her to have more power than anybody else. She was a threat. Mm-hmm. I can keep going. But I do want to show you a relic that is really cool and near and dear to my heart. This is the relic that lives in the altar of our seminary chapel. It's a part of the finger of Thomas Aquinas. What? And Thomas Aquinas is the patron saint of seminarians and scholars. Oh. So we were able to get that. We always joke that on St. Thomas Aquinas' feast day, we should take it out and parade it around. But then our dean reminds us that we are in the South. We don't know how well that would go. One thing about altars, especially in older churches, is it was believed in the early church that the martyrs were the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So that's why relics became so important. One of the many reasons. And aside from the miraculous healing. So you would find relics in various altars because that's what consecrated an altar, aside from the prayers, was having a relic. And especially the further the church spread outside of Rome and the further it was away from tombs because churches would start on the tombs of the martyrs. Mm, So when you're farther away from the tomb, you still want to have that, have a relic. A lot of new churches now may not have that because we don't need to keep hacking up people and like stuff like that. (laughs) But a lot of older churches still have that. We have it. There is So Thomas Aquinas, CD, Thomas Aquinas is a church doctor, doctor of the church in Roman Catholicism. That is someone who has made a tremendous impact in the church. And in Roman Catholicism, now there's three or four women now that are doctors of the church. Oh, cool. That's awesome. It's not just a boys club anymore. Love to hear it. Love to hear it. What was the other one? I had another one. I was like, I've got to show Kina. Oh, Santa Claus. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so actually was very dark because he was from Turkey. So St. Nicholas was the Bishop of Myra in Turkey. His his relics were moved after the city of Myra was 
overthrown. So they're now in Bari in Italy. And so you can go. This is his tomb there. Oh. And one of the things when they opened St. Nicholas's tomb was they found manna was appearing in the tomb. <gasps> manna like God throwing manna for people in the Exodus because they didn't have anything manna. And apparently it's still happening because every year the tomb is opened. The dean of the basilica goes in and extracts manna from the tomb, has it there for the year. It is weird. Like, this is a picture of him. Like, this is a video of him going in and. Oh, he's crawling in there, huh? Yeah, because it's like in there underneath. Booty out in the air. (laughs) I know, right? Look at the vestments. But yeah, this is like a painted manna bottle. So people put the manna in there. Wow. Yeah, it's nuts. And that's uh, Pope Francis when he made a visit. Okay. Hanging out. I don't know if he got any manna when he was there. I would hope he did because, I mean, he's the Pope. But yeah, so there was a big fight over St. Nicholas's thing. St. Nicholas is also known for punching heretics. Oh, that's my favorite part. I was bored on his day, St. Nicholas Day. He punched Arius in the face at the Council of Nicaea to shut him up. Man, Um, that's great. I I think a lot of people should have been punched in the face at the Council of Nicaea. (laughs) There were like rogue, thuggish, like monks running around. Oh, outside of the Vatican. This is the largest collection of religious relics in the world. Oh, cool. Was that Pennsylvania? Well, that's something that I could probably realistically go see. Yeah. So like all these things here. Those are are all. Cool. That's a lot. All brought over by a man who became a doc, who was a doctor, who's a German doctor, decided to become a priest and was very rich when he became a priest. And so he brought over all these relics and kept acquiring them. Oh, okay. And so, and you can go see this chapel. It's free. They do ask for a donation of like $10. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's how like Europe is. Like if you want to go to the basement and look at the relic, you got to put yeah. some, put some euros and pounds in there. There's over 6,000 relics there. 6,000. Wow. Yeah. Yes. You could see like all kinds of stuff. So yes. Highly recommend it. Well, that's a bucket list. (laughs) I'm just saying there's so many things on my bucket list. Like I need to go see St. Catherine's head. I need to go see like so many things i think that's that's everything i had like i said i was gonna ramble a lot one last thing okay mm-hmm. people are fucking weird about saints and their relics right uh-huh. to the extreme one more picture and then i promise i'm done and i'll shut up no you're fine so this guy lovers of history you will know this face charles habsburg Oh, yeah. The second of Spain with that Habsburg chin. The chin. When he was dying, and obviously years of, you know, inbreeding caused poor health, he wanted the relics of saints in his bed with him. Oh, no. To miraculously cure him. So, Saint Isidore, the former, was brought out of his tomb to hang out with Charles Habsburg. Oh. Needless to say, that didn't cure him. 
No. And he still died. <laughs> so. Wow. The power of relics is a thing that has been like, yeah, for a long time. Even royals. Well, I guess if you have that kind of power and you're like, can't hurt to try. You were like, hey, go dig up this dude. I mean, what are you going to do? You can't say no. Like, (laughs) no, your grace. I don't want to dig up the dude. I said dig up the dude. So, yeah. So, that is a fun whirlwind scatterbrained ADHD trip through relics. I loved it so much. Oh, so interesting. I love cathedrals, and every time I go to one, I immediately look for the reliquary. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, yeah. sit out. What do they have? I need to, I need to see it. In New Orleans, there's a new shrine, the shrine of Blessed Francis Silos, who is one miracle away. They're evaluating his second miracle. He was a priest, a German priest that came over to America during the Civil War, and then he came to New Orleans during Yellow Fever. And helped nurse people, and he died of yellow fever. Oh, okay. And so his relics are there, and they have a bunch of other relics in there, too. So you can go, like, see the reliquary he's in, and there's, like, this cool cool angle you can stand at to, like, get the Virgin Mary and, like, the picture with the reliquary. And, like, yeah. So it's in New Orleans, so not that far away. All right. So we ready to get spooky? Yes. Spooky. This is probably the hardest one to narrow down for spooky because, uh, of course, you're going to assume with religion we'll do possession. But I am legitimately afraid of demons to the point I don't like to talk about them or watch anything about them. I don't want to invite that shit into my life. (laughs) Mm -mm. No, I have not watched Demon House yet, even though I I watch Zach Bagans and stuff like that, just because I'm like, no, I'm not inviting that shit in my house. I got too much going on right now. Can't do it. Yeah, and like possession movies like i loved i really liked the possession of emily rose and, yeah. and that was another one where they're like well she might be a saint because she saw mary and all that stuff but i'm like it still creeped the hell out of me and oh just, god and like the story about the actual person that that's based on mm-hmm. like the tapes they have of that possession oh no <laughs> no ma'am no no ma'am and i like have a rosary i'm not catholic but i'm like mm-hmm. just in case there's <laughs> such a weirdo but i got like 12 which also like if you go to a cathedral or something anybody can get a rosary from that cathedral and that money goes to help with the restoration and like yeah functioning always so always buy one. cathedral gift shops yes always. i always get one take care of them so i have one from chartres and then one from notre dame de paris yeah. they're both gorgeous and they're on my fireplace mantle <laughs> I thought about getting the, the labyrinth that's in the floor of Chartres as like one of my tattoos. Oh, but that was the coolest thing I've experienced being able to do that. So anyway, long rant just to say uh, I didn't want to do demons. So I went through like a thousand other things I could talk about before someone reminded me that I live right next to one of the most haunted cathedrals in the country. <laughs> so thank you, Aaron from Facebook, because I'm a dumbass and I was like, what am I doing? Because I was asking people in a spooky group being like, what should I do? Because I don't want to touch possession. I didn't really want to do a Dybbuk box because we're going to talk about Judaism next week. I was like, what else is there? And she was like, why don't you do a haunted church? And I was like, ding, ding, ding. I've been to one here. So we are going to talk about the history of the San Fernando Cathedral in San Antonio, Texas. 
you know, San Antonio, a.k.a. Alamo City, a.k.a. Military City, USA, a.k.a. River City, a.k.a. Saytown, a.k.a. Mission City. There's a lot of names here. Home of Big Red. Tacos are better here. North Texas can fight me. I think they're better. <laughs> There's like this fight where it's like San Antonio and Austin are like, my tacos are better. And then the other one's like, no, mine are. And then like Dallas, Fort Worth is like, hey, ours. And everybody's like, shut up. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. it's like, hey, we're here too. It's it's hilarious. But I've had tacos in all of them. And I think San Antonio is the best. So hot take. Anyway, this is not about tacos. This is about ghosts. <laughs> Everything goes to tacos. All roads lead to tacos. <laughs> so we're going to start with a little background, but we're going to also keep in mind that while this history is so fascinating, the entire story is built on this foundation of fucking colonization and all the sadness that this was a rich native indigenous culture mm-hmm. that the Spanish just bulldozed in and was like, we're going to make you Christian now. And they didn't need help. They didn't need to be converted. And all, all they did was just like kind of force them into Damn <laughs> working and then they all got sick and it was just like a whole thing. So the colonization <laughs> off my soapbox for the moment. And we will go back. I'm sure. Colonization, man. It's, it's just part of everything. If you don't it acknowledge it, it's just so the natural springs in the river valley of San Antonio and the San Antonio River attracted humans and settlements for thousands of years. There's been prehistoric artifacts found here that are 11,000 years old. So that was found at Breckenridge Park in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And the, it looks like almost, but I'm pretty sure it's Alms Basin. I'm trying, Texas. I'm trying. <laughs> All the words are spelled like... That's simple, and then you pronounce it completely different. It's like in Louisiana. It's like yeah. Natchitoches in Louisiana is Nagadoches in Texas. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. <laughs> but like bear, we're gonna talk about bear a lot. It's B E X A R. Yeah. <laughs> oh lord. Anyway, they found this in the Alms Basin. The largest, most important archaeological site in Bear County is located where the Alms Dam now sits. And this is a thing that really hurt my heart today. So little remains of this incredibly old, like tens of thousands year old archaeological site because they built the dam on top of it. <sighs> and it wasn't like it wasn't investigated. And this was like prehistory dating from the Clovis period on to modern to the time they were building the dam and a little refresher the clovis is a paleo-american culture named for their distinct stone tools they used so Mm -hmm. the spear points just in case you don't remember so as recently as the late 1920s this location was visited by a small group of ponca indian elders who made ritual offerings and then collected their beans and wild peppers on their way to collect peyote in south texas so in the 1920s they were still doing these rituals in this area so this is a very symbolic part of this area but again only a fraction of the site's human history has been documented because fucking people suck and because they stripped most of the artifacts that were on the surface level just collect collectors i have uh, quote fingers uh, aka like pompous rich thieves you know being like i want this Put it out in my house. <laughs> in the comments, here we got Dion with Kina. You have driven me to drink with that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, it it's bad. 
and it gets a little worse. Okay. So the San Antonio River area, there were some floods. So around 1920s, mid-1920s, they were like, we have to build a dam because we have to start controlling the waters. But they chose this basin to build this. And so the engineer, his name was C.B. Orchard. What a name. So he's the engineer and he was the first one to be like, whoa, there's stuff here. And he's like, that's cool. So he started like taking some of it and he actually wrote it down for the first person to write down that things were here. Mm-hmm. But nobody was like, hey, maybe we should stop and look. But it was the 1920s, I guess. I don't know. I was trying. I was I was raging earlier to my husband and he's like, well, it's the 1920s. Who cared about archaeology? I'm like, this was like the cusp of, you know, freaking Howard Carter about to discover King right. Everybody was really into this. I mean, they were all about grave robbing and like stealing shit. But I was just like surprised that not anybody was like, maybe we should dig and see what's there. Well, and this is a big period too, like when they're building dams like in Georgia, Lake Lanier and the Mississippi Delta building all these dams and flooding out all these things. And so it's like how much more has also been lost? Absolutely. And dam projects. Those damn damn projects. Those damn damn projects. And and I know that. Some people died in these floods, so I know there was an urgency to build them, but still. And the only part of this area that was properly archaeologically documented was a small part of the Lake Archaic Cemetery that they found when they were doing repairs in 1970. And they found the the cemetery dated about 2,000 to 2,200 years. Wow. So old. So that really hurt my heart. 11,000 years of history. We have a few graves from like 2,200 years ago. I'm kind of rage bad it for a really long time. That's fine. But it just like, I think what kills me is that the people that were involved and they were all white men. I thousand percent can guarantee that had such a lack of respect for this entire group of people and their culture and their history that it didn't even like dawn on anybody that they were something that should be preserved. That's mm-hmm. just what gets me. It's just. Ugh, I, I, and that's still happening now, too. Yeah. When I was in Hawaii, the Mauna Kea protests were, like, really going on. And it's like, sir, sacred burial ground on top of this mountain. And you're wanting to build, like, a, you know, gazillion story telescope up here when the Canary Islands have told you you could build it there. Why do you have to have here? And, like, the Mexican cultures that we're talking about have some of the most rich history rich religions it's oh, it just kills me <sighs> so the early residents of this region were called oh lord okay koha we tacons yes nailed, nailed it. it okay <laughs> maybe i'll do a little fast koha we tacons yes mm-hmm. they were not a single group of american indians but instead a generic term for those who lived in the coahuila y tejas of which San Antonio was part prior to the independence from Mexico in 1836. There were up to 200 small bands of hunter-gatherers that lived in a seasonal village along the river. They named it Young Iguana, which meant refreshing waters. They were semi-nomadic, and they spent most of the year in San Antonio when the weather's nice, but then times like today where it sucks, <laughs> they would go to the Gulf Coast and just I mean- stay where it's warmer. Makes perfect sense to me. Right? You have like two months a year where it's cold here, but mm-hmm. it's not down there. <laughs> so in the 1600s, 1700s, 
Other American Indian bands began to enter the area, mainly the Tonkawa and the Lipin Apache, which came all the way from Canada, which I found incredibly uh, impressive. And then you have the Comanche. And at the same time, Europeans are starting to kind of filter in. So you had the French really taking over at this time. Like they're really gaining some traction. And then the Spanish were like, oh shit, we need to start taking some stuff before the French get here. And that's that's how the story begins is the Spanish be like, we gotta get in there. <laughs> Don't mm-hmm. let the French take it. So Franciscan priest Damien Massenet was first to meet with the Kohawitakans of the Piatri. Oh, I said tribe wrong. The Pai tribe near the headwaters of the river on June 13th, 1691. So he's really the first religious person to try to talk to these indigenous peoples. So this guy had left Barcelona to serve as a missionary in the new world. And he had spent several years building missions in Mexico. And then in 1690, he accompanied a general and he established the first mission in Texas. And this mm-hmm. one's like a way east of here. Mission San Francisco de los Quejas. And it was founded near Natchez. So 41 years later, they moved this mission to San Antonio. And then Spain withdrew from that area, the military mm-hmm. support. So anyhow, San Antonio is named after St. Anthony. It was founded as a city in 1718, which also baffles me like how old the history is here in Texas. Because right. in Arkansas, everything's 1800s. And I was like, oh, this is cool. So it was founded by Father Antonio Oliveres. So if you're ever on the Riverwalk, there's a really cool statue of this dude. He established Mission San Antonio de Valero, which later became the Alamo. Ever heard of it? (laughs) Ever heard of it? Ever heard of it? Yes. So they established the missions to convert the local indigenous peoples to Christianity. And then soon there were five Spanish missions located along the river. So you have Mission San Jose, Mission Concepcion, Mission San Juan, Capistrano, Mission Espada, and then Mission San Antonio de Valero, a.k.a. the Alamo. And all of them are still standing. Some of them are kind of more ruins, but Mm -hmm. they all are still churches. They all still have services. You can go visit all of them. And they are UNESCO World Heritage Sites, which are... One of the few in the whole continent. So it's 10 out of 10. Definitely. If you come here, go there. And it's also shocking because I always take people to like uh, Mission San Jose. Um, It's huge. And then you go to the Alamo and it's so tiny. (laughs) It's like, oh, hey, there's the Alamo. (laughs) Yeah. Because everybody's like, Alamo, Alamo. But you see all the other ones. You're like, wow. But I have a picture to kind of give you an idea. Like up here, that's the Alamo. And then it just goes down the river all the way down. Which, if you, like, today, this is all, like, a river trail pathway. So you can walk through all of them. It's really nice. Oh, cool. It's, like, a nature-y thing. All right. So now we're going to turn our focus to 1731. And 55 settlers arrive in San Antonio from the Canary Islands. These people were given land and a title by King Philip V of Spain. And... It sounds like they were kind of told that this was a town and things were going to be cool and everything is going to be great. And then they showed up and there was nothing there <laughs> except for like the missionaries. So it's like Morgan Freeman voice, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So essentially they kind of like 
fibbed a little to get them there because they were like, oh, the French are coming. We got to get a settlement going. So it was about 15 families, and they eventually founded the San Fernando Cathedral in San Antonio. This cathedral is the oldest continuously functioning religious community in the state of Texas, and it's the oldest operating sanctuary in North America. Wow. Yeah. It's so cool. So I didn't realize it was that. I knew it was old, but I didn't realize it was the oldest in the country. Yeah. It's so beautiful. I can't wait to show you this. Construction of the original church began in 1738 when the cornerstone was laid on May 11th. I love that we know the actual date, you know? That's so yeah. Funny. And fun fact, this was before the Alamo's first stone mission was built in 1744. So this came before that. But... The Alamo that you see today is not that Alamo. That one actually collapsed in 1756. So the one you see today was the one built in 1758. In 1748, the Viceroy approved a donation of 12,000 pesos to complete the church, and then they got to work. But during this time, this is where I was telling her before we started recording. I came across this fact, and I was like, there's no way this is true. And then I was able to fact check it from the actual Apache website, so I know it's true. Because <laughs> I was the first, I was like... They made this up, but they did not. So during this time, the Canary Islanders are under constant threat by the Lipan Apaches. Before they had arrived, they had actually declared war on San Antonio for taking their land, you know. So then the Canary Islanders show up and they're like, oh, no, <laughs> what is happening? They're like, we weren't even here for this. Ugh. And the attacks were brutal. They were constant. They were unforgiving. So much so that they were warned not to ever leave their houses. It was just like an imminent fear that they were going to die. So that went great. And then lines had been drawn, blood had been shed, and the raids just seemed like they were never going to end. And then the Comanche tribes entered into the fray. So by 1749, the Liban Apache struggled greatly against the warring horsemen of the Comanche peoples, leading them to be like, okay, we have to come to some sort of agreement. So ideas of peace treaties started popping up. And then they're like, all right, we're going to do this. And they have a peace offering made at the old San Fernando church. Hmm. So a crowd gathered to watch this occasion. So it had, you know, chieftains from the tribes and then members of the Canary Islanders. And they dug a deep hole in the soil. And then the peace offerings was things of like throwing hatchets in and arrows and war clubs. And it was a symbol of peace. You know that saying, burying the hatchet? Literally from this. Blue what? Yes. Yeah, it was our way. That's where it came from? Yeah, I mean, just in general. Not necessarily this, but yeah, that's what they did. They would bury the hatchet literally to show like we're we're gonna we're done. Yeah. Yes. And this is the part that I was like, oh no. <laughs> uh, what's that TikTok? I was like, oh no, oh no, 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 no. They also buried a white horse alive. Because horses were very significant to their culture. So it was like shocking to us. But to them, they're like, this makes perfect sense. And then the white color was very symbolic of peace. So they put a horse in the pit. And then they refilled the hole. Uh, Taylor Swift, you know. <laughs> Get off your white horse. A fairy tale. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, no, poor horse. But I get it. I mean, for their culture, it made absolute sense. Like, it was right. the ultimate peace symbol. So trying not to be too like aghast because that's just how right. they were. And after that, they all kind of like joined hands and they did a thing where they danced around the circle three times and it was this big celebration. And it actually, they 
did it. They had this newfound peace. Everybody was getting along. And then smallpox. Fuck. <laughs> so then of it's not like war killing everybody. It's just fucking smallpox. So that's great. And it caused just devastation to a point nobody could imagine. Ah, so we're going to try to get a little happier. <laughs> Sunshine podcast day, y'all. We started out with grief. We've talked about body parts. Now we're burying horses alive. And so much disease. About 1755, we're here now, and it has finally been constructed. It was formally named after King Ferdinand III of Castile. And he was the 13th century Spanish king who is really credited with a peaceful coexistence between Christians, Muslims, and Jews. So he was actually canonized in 1671. And they decided they wanted to join Old World and New World saints. So the congregation chose Our Lady of Candlemas and Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe Mm -hmm. and then also San Fernando. So they have three saints. And they also called the church after the other two saints, too. But San Fernando is the most, uh, most common name. Yeah, It is the mother church of the archdiocese in San Antonio and the seat of its archbishop. That's a big deal. Um, in the really Catholic church, deal. archdiocese and diocese are called that based on population. In Mississippi, you have the Diocese of Jackson and the Diocese of Biloxi. We don't have an archdiocese because we we're not big enough for one. Oh. But like Mobile has a lot of Catholics. So they're an archdiocese. New Orleans is an archdiocese. So San Antonio, definitely an archdiocese. Yeah. So that's cool. And then another fun fact is that the original walls from the 1755 church forms the sanctuary today. Oh, that's so cool. So this right here is the original walls from the 1755. And that's the sanctuary. Oh, beautiful. So, The red lamp there, the red candle there, do you know what that is? No. So that's called the sanctuary lamp. And when that's lit, that means that the um, blessed sacrament is in the tabernacle there. Oh. So if there's always a church that has reserved sacrament, like pre-consecrated sacrament that they're like putting in there, it'll be lit. Oh, I didn't know that. So there's some actually really cool markers inside the church. Oh, yeah. This one is marked right in front of the sanctuary. And this is exactly where the doors to the original church were. So if you are in San Fernando, definitely look on the floor for this. That is so cool. And then there's on the opposite side marks that the center of San Antonio. So this church was constructed to be the absolute center of the entire town. And they've tried to keep it that way throughout history. Oh, Oh, that is so cool. Uh I'm such a church nerd. Anytime like I go somewhere, I'm like, can we go look at the old church, please? I need to go look at it and like (laughs) dig around. And Oh, I know. And everything's so old here that I'm just losing my damn mind. So this is the baptismal font. Oh, it's, that's gorgeous. It's believed to be a gift from Charles III, who became King of Spain in 1759. It's the oldest piece of liturgical furnishing in the cathedral. That is beautiful. So unusual, too, because a lot of fonts are like octagonal mm-hmm. or hexagonal. And so I love the like lip of it going around. That's yeah. really beautiful. We talked about that candle. Did I say that right? Candelaria? Candelaria? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So inside they have <gasps> a, a version of Candelaria and it is a black Madonna. 
And she's the patroness of the Canary Islands, so that was really important to them since they all came from there. But it is beautiful. I love the Black Madonnas. They're such a beautiful tradition. And they're very controversial. Like, nobody can actually agree why they're Black Madonnas, but I was trying to find, like, a set answer. And everybody's like, we don't know. (laughs) Yeah, there's one in Poland that, like, Pope John Paul II was, like, very devoted to, like, the icon Our Lady of Cheshawfwa. She's a black Madonna, and it's like she actually looks really white. Why do you call her black? I don't know. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, that's never really been explained to me either. Yeah, I, I think it's just one of those things. Everybody has an opinion, but nobody really knows. They just kind right. of guess. And there's some like scientifically, some of them have just aged to appear darker, <laughs> but some of them were legitimately made to be darker. darker. So it's. <laughs> It's one of those things that we all just have an educated guess and see what happens. (laughs) So by the end of the 18th century, the parish served by the church had grown considerably to a population of about a thousand. In 1773, San Antonio de Bear became the capital of Spanish Texas. And for decades before Texas independence, San Fernando Parish was the only recognized parish in the entire area. Wow. And then eventually the church acquired vessels, mission records, and parishioners from nearby San Antonio de Valero Mission when it was secularized in 1793, and then eventually all four that were downstream in 1824. Mm. And then the church suffered some setbacks in the early 19th century. It was damaged by a flood in 1819, and then there was a fire in 1828. So significant building was carried out in 1829 to 1830. And the church continued to serve as an important religious and social center throughout all of it. So there was never a time when anything bad happened that they ever stopped being a church. They just kind of, even today, if they do construction, it's still open. Oh, yeah. All right. So you might recognize this guy. In 1831, James Bowie married Ursula de Veramendi in San Fernando, which must have been a huge party because her dad was the governor at the time. So it had to have been like the event. And he was a big deal in the, you know, Texas Revolution. So the whole he night, would have, everything, he yeah. would have had like all his buddies there and everything was great until it wasn't. <laughs> We're going to have more disease entering the area. There was a cholera epidemic that swept through Texas and news was spreading that it was coming to San Antonio. So Bowie decided not to risk his family and they went to their state in Mexico But in a tragic turn of events, it wasn't San Antonio that the disease hit. It was their town. So he lost his family, his in-laws, his wife. And within eight days, everybody was dead. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was not great. And as local lore goes, James Bowie never recovered. He was never the same again. And he died pretty soon after that. Yeah. (laughs) I just lost my voice for a second. Which he, by the way, is from Arkansas, if you guys didn't know that. So the infamous Bowie knife, Bowie number one, is in the museum that I worked at before I moved to Texas. And I was like, look at Bowie. Like a hunter who's a Patreon, we would be like cleaning the glass and be like, I'm so close to it. (laughs) It's so cool. And they actually have a blacksmith shop outside and they forge them exactly how he did it. It's so cool. So if you're ever in Arkansas, go to the historic Arkansas Museum. It's so cool. He's like a little claim to Arkansas fame there. Was that Little Rock? Yes. In 1836, the cathedral was still a parish church at that time, but it played a huge role in the Battle of the Alamo. I mean, I remember it. (laughs) Remember the Alamo. (laughs) 
So when Mexican General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana hoisted the flag of no quarter, which means no mercy, Mm -hmm. he did so from the church's tower, and that marked the beginning of the siege. So he also used the church as a lookout, and they also put Mexican cannons on the roof during the siege of Bear, which was the first major campaign of the Texan Revolution. For a little bit of context, it is 0.6 miles away from the Alamo in San Fernando. Like, they're very close. It's a three-minute walk. They're very, very close. Yeah. So, the Battle of the Alamo is legendary, right? But with a lot of things that are legendary, facts get a little cloudy. So, it takes a lot to weed through eyewitness accounts versus the embellished accounts that came later to make it seem more heroic and all that. Because, like, Bowie, for example, there's... I even saw Drunk History. It showed him, like, going out and blazing battle and fighting. But he was, like, dying in a bed. And he just had a yeah, gun. Yeah, he wasn't even there. Like, yeah, he was, they made him a makeshift hospital inside. And he was just like, eh. But, yeah, I've seen, like, movies where he's, like, charging. And, but, you and, know, he was in bed. But, anyhow, all that to say is that we can agree that a lot of people died. But nobody can agree on how many people died. So I found this website. Somebody had created a chart. So every single person that had a different number. So you have everything from the Daughters of the Revolution. Mm -hmm. This is what's listed in the long barracks at the Alamo. So it says like 189 Texans died and 600 Mexicans died. And then you come down here and you have like Santa Ana. This one says 600 Texans died and 1,000 Mexicans died or were wounded. And then down here we have like eyewitness accounts, personal statements, and like messengers. So on these it shows like on the Mexican side like 15, 1,600 people died. So there's really no way to tell because all these people are claiming to be eyewitnesses. And it's like who's right, who's wrong. It's kind of really hard to tell. Mm-hmm. So the, the Alamo needs its own out episode because there's so much going on so much stuff with that and it's so haunted too that it's like yeah so like what happened to these bodies (laughs) remember this is spooky so we're gonna have a lot of ghosts okay so san antonio mayor at the time francisco antonio ruiz gave probably the most concise account of what happened after the alamo he says soldiers were buried the mexican soldiers and the graveyard and then once it was full they dumped the rest in the river In terms of the Texas defenders, remember, everybody died, except for, like, a few people didn't want to be a part of the defending, and they bounced. So everybody that was in the Alamo died. So Santa Ana sent out dragoons to a nearby forest to bring in wood and branches. They took all the bodies. And this is also controversial. Like, some accounts say a thing called Alameda Road, and then some people are trying to figure out exactly where it was. Some people think it's, like, right in front of, like, where the cenotaph is today and some people Mm -hmm. said it's like where the parking garage is today regardless they did find an area and they created giant funeral pyres so they just kept putting all the bodies on there until they were all there and about eight o'clock that night they lit the fires and just burnt all the bodies it said accounts say that they smoldered for days (sighs) i just can't even imagine imagine the smell and there's some accounts people say that the remains and ashes stay there for like a year, like because nobody did anything. So nobody knows exactly what happens to the remains, and that's been a huge like myth almost now. Of, like what happened? So one of the legends is that after Texas had won its independence, Colonel Juan Seguin, so dude, my town's named after, 
Uh, he controlled the New Republic, and he reportedly buried the corpses under the sanctuary railing of the San Fernando Church. And we're going to get more into that. But, mm-hmm. like, Seguin is also weird. So, like, he got buried, I think, in Mexico. And then this town was, like, named, like, Walnut Springs or something. And they were like, hey, let's go dig up Seguin and bring him here. And then we'll call the town Seguin. And that's what they did. <laughs> they just went and grabbed him. And now he's buried, like, a mile from me. <laughs> I just finished reading this book called Rest in Pieces by Best Lovejoy. Mm-hmm. And it's about, like, the curious fate of some of the most famous corpses. Like, what happened to them. And, like, just the number of people are like, oh, yeah, dude said he wanted this. But, no, we're actually going to do this because we think this would be cooler. Oh, my God. Like, no wonder we can't figure out where people are half the damn time. Because it's like, you know, like, you didn't listen. Anyway, it's also really interesting. They're doing some major archaeological digs right now at the Alamo. And they have found some bodies and stuff. So, I'm really interested to see what they do. Because... They found some Native Americans and the tribes are pissed and be like, you can't touch them because in a lot of Native American cultures, a body cannot be disturbed or it disturbs their afterlife. Right. So there's been a lot of like back and forth because they're like, we just want to preserve it or we want to study it. And they're like, no, you can't do that. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a thing that's happening right now. And they're doing I think they found it underneath the church. So the big thing that you see is the chapel. Right. Pictures and stuff. Under the altar in the crypt. Yeah. So if you go in right now, you can actually see some like holes where they're like doing stuff, which is really neat. But okay. So Texas won their independence at the Battle of San Jacinto not too long after this. And they actually returned to San Fernando so they could fly the victory flag. It's like a symbolic gesture. They're taking it back. Mm hmm. And then by 1840, the church had fallen into another terrible state of disrepair. One observer noted that half its roof was gone and the swallows and bats flew out and in constantly. We've had a fire, we've had a flood, and now we have a caving in roof. 1868, under the direction of architect Francois P. Girard, the cathedral was considerably enlarged into a Gothic style. It has a nave, triple entrance portals, a gable roof, and twin bell towers and buttresses. I love buttresses. Buttresses. <laughs> Who oh, doesn't have a buttress? And this is one of my favorite photos I've ever taken. I took this photo. I'm so proud of it. TM, TM, TM. TM, TM, TM. <laughs> I f- not this one. <laughs> oh, I do love that picture, though. Yeah, a little black and white action. But nice. yeah, I, I love it. Oh, I do love the buttresses. It's definitely got European, like Notre Dame, you know, vibes to it. It's especially the double towers. Yeah. She pretty. It still has like just the roofs and stuff still has a mission feel too mixed Mm -hmm. in with the Gothic. Oh, yeah. It's definitely a blending. (gasps) Oh, I love that. Yeah. So it's definitely like it fits into like the rest of the missions, like especially the color. You can definitely tell. Oh, yeah. It's so pretty. Here's one from 1907. Oh, wow. And they call it European Square. And so in front of it, they have big parties. They have a giant market every Saturday. Well, pre. The before times they did. It's just a really, really cool area. And fun fact, this architect actually became the mayor of San Antonio later. Oh, wow. That's fun. In 1872, the original dome fell. But by 1873, they started doing more reconstruction 
Even though the second bell tower wasn't completed until 1902, the new church was consecrated in October of 1873. Cool. With the formation of the Diocese of San Antonio in 1874. So this became the diocese like a long time ago. Yeah, that's that's early for a Catholic diocese. Yeah. One of the earlier ones. I think Baltimore may be the oldest. Yeah, and then it was at this point that it was designated a cathedral. Hmm. And not only was this the first diocese in Texas, it was the first cathedral in Texas. Oh, wow. So that's really cool. That is cool. And they did rebuild the rebuild the dome and the dome actually served as the like center of the city. So that point is where they're like everything has to kind of go into that. So that's really cool. And at one time, all distances in Texas were measured from the dome of that church. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then in 1920, the cathedral finally received its beautiful stained glass windows that are like a huge hit today. Let me, I love a good stained glass window. Oh, me too. Like they tell so many stories. They do. Which, you know, a lot of the older ones, that's how they told stories. People can see pictures. And that's one thing like working with churches and stuff right now, especially ones with ties to Confederacy and that Mm -hmm. have like Confederate windows and stuff. Like, how do you reckon that? In your church, what do you do with those windows, right? And this is another photo I took. So, some more spooky. In 1936, a box was unearthed in the cathedral during renovations. And they found charred bones, some nails, and some tattered uniforms. They immediately were like, holy shit, this is the Alamo heroes. Because we talked about how they were burned and just left. So... About 1889, once again, you know, the dude, he had actually supposedly said on his deathbed that these were the heroes of the Alamo. So you got like Crockett and Bowie and Travis. So to this day, it actually says them. But many historians actually doubt this claim, including the Texas State Historical Association, who said, quote, they are almost certainly not (laughs) them. But the Archbishop Arthur Drossert's was the cleric who first said the remains were Bowie Crockett and Travis. He said, quote, the rough wooden coffin has moldered into dust. Only a few rusty nails survive. A few shreds of military uniforms can still be recognized. A few crushed skulls and charred bones together with the very charcoal of their funeral pyre in the front of the Alamo and the ashes of their bodies have been gathered by devoted patriotic hands and placed in a temporary receptacle. They're relics. Mm-hmm. That's a mm-hmm. relic. This is what it looks like. It's right in one of the entrances. Oh, nice. So if you come in through like the the first, the left tower, mm-hmm. this will be there. I mean, they do have an epitaph. Here lies the remains of Travis Crockett and Bowie and other yeah. Alamo heroes. The Archdiocese of San Antonio erected this memorial on May the 2nd in 1938. R.I.P. <laughs> I love the exhumed July 28th, 1936. Exposed to public view for a year. And then entombed. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. It's like they have to say, like, we did let y'all see them for a year. Yeah. And then we had to bury them again. The cathedral underwent another major restoration in the mid-1970s. And repairs were made in preparation for Pope John Paul II. What? And he visited in September 13th, 1987. And here's a photo of him. JP2. JP2. And he was the only Pope to ever visit Texas. And there's a marker that commemorates the event. And there's also a relic. (gasps) It is a blood-stained bandage. 
Okay, so that is a, it's not, well, he used it, so it's second class. Okay, okay. I couldn't or tell if it was blood, second or third. So it could be first class. Oh, yeah, it's true. It says it's bloodstained. Yeah, it's bloodstained. And this is from when he was beatified, too. So that's an early relic. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is so cool. Yeah, and there's a giant statue of him. This is a pedestal, and then his statue's on top of it. It's so cool. So this is on the right tower. So if you come in the right tower, this is that door. Do you know what happened to the bullet um, they pulled out of him after he the, his assassination attempt? No. Okay. So there was an assassination attempt on him 1980, 80, 81, something like that. And he almost died. Like there was this whole thing that like he was going to die. And he didn't. He uh, had the bullet pulled out like after, you know, he wanted the bullet. And he was shot on the day, um, the feast day of Our Lady of Fatima. And he has, uh, he had a very deep devotion to um, the Virgin Mary. And so he had the bullet that was taken out of him put in the crown of the Our Lady of Fatima statue in Fatima. Um, So when you go to Fatima and see that statue, the bullet is in her crown. How cool. Yeah. I did not know that. And then in 2003, there was another major renovation project that had three phases. And this one was worth $15 million. Wow. So there's a lot of money. And they've actually, this one created a venue next to it. So they have like major weddings and stuff. It's really pretty. But they put a lot of money into the community. And because it's the oldest church in Texas, it makes sense that it's haunted. Yes. I'd seen this first and then it'll make sense why I was so mind blown about the the horse thing. So apparently there's an apparition of a white stallion that gallops in front of the church and people spot it all the time. And then I was like, holy crap, from the Apache Peace offering in the 1730s. Oh, it blew my mind. That is really cool. Yeah, because I kept seeing things about a horse and I'm like, well, that's random for a church. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, why is a random horse? It's like that. <laughs> Oh, it's all Here's Patronus of the horse. <laughs> this is actually part of the Haunted San Antonio ghost tour. Oh, like cool. They allow you to go to this church and stuff. So I think that's kind of cool. They were like, sure, whatever. <laughs> Just yeah. be nice and respectful. Yeah. So guests on the ghost tours have caught all sorts of paranormal phenomenon, including brightly lit orbs that kind of zip around. And... People were buried in the walls just mm-hmm. because, and that's just a thing that happens in cathedrals mm-hmm. and all kinds of churches. So people were kind of like freaked out and they're like, well, no wonder it's haunted and I'm seeing people. There's people. Oh, yeah. The there's wall. always crypts, like crypts and either in the wall or like under the altar or. Yeah. yeah. They're everywhere. You're going to, or like hearts. There's always hearts by an altar somewhere. Oh yeah. Or like stuck in the wall, stuck in a pillar yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So during the early years of the church, it wasn't out of the norm to actually bury people within the walls. The rankings of the people never really mattered. So you had the highest ranking men next to the poorest, and they ultimately found themselves interred for a period of time until like renovations and stuff. And sometimes they would be moved because they were trying to reinforce walls. Mm-hmm. While parishioners were given the walls, the priests and other prominent Catholics in the parish were given the floor. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, especially Europe is so much older. So definitely like, Say, like, Meghan Markle's wedding, if you watch that. Like, mm-hmm. she's walking down the walking all over everybody. Yeah. <laughs> There's all the royalty and stuff. So, you definitely see that. Well, Westminster Abbey, like, you can't not walk on someone. In yeah, Westminster yeah. Abbey. 
Absolutely. And so Anthony Dominic Pellicer is the first bishop of the San Fernando Cathedral, and he's buried under the head of the main aisle of the church. Okay. And more strangely, the area where the Alamo defenders' remains were found happens to be like the railing, like I said. And there's also other officers that perished in the Battle of El Rocillo on March 28th, 1813, around the same area. So, mm-hmm. so for years, people who visited have reported seeing faces appear in the walls of the church. Some people see gaping mouths, two sunken eyes, or features of a skull. And this one was on the Smithsonian like photo competition, right? And it was like, I see bones in the wall. And I just don't see it. Maybe I'm blind. This is why I never see ghosts, because they're probably like in my face and I still can't see it. Okay, so this is what the caption says. This photograph was captured on the grounds of San Fernando Cathedral. Oh, I do see it. Which is well-known haunted destination. Parishioners happen to be buried in the walls. The photograph shows what appears to be the apparition of human bones. I only noticed this after I took the photograph. I actually was taking a picture of something else on the walls of the church. Yeah, I see. I see a skull, like that big black blob area in the center. A skull, like turned to the side. And then on multiple occasions, shadow ghostly figures have been spotted wandering the grounds. On one occasion, a guest on a ghost tour stood listening to the guide and he kept seeing or she kept seeing somebody like standing behind them like they were on the tour. She said that it was kind of weird because they were kind of staying off and being weird or whatever. And then they just poof disappeared. And then she tried to describe it to people. And actually, several other people saw it, too. And it was dressed in all black, kind of like 18th, 19th century, like friar monk type thing oh yeah it could be like a cassock or something because cassocks are all black yeah they've also reported the manifestation of other shadowy figures by the walls next to the doors and some people say it appears like they have control over like when they pop in and out so that's kind of interesting for ghosts Hmm. yeah there's a haunted church in savannah when sherman came through savannah he tried to melt down the church bells oh, for no. ammo and the church lady was like oh hell no you're not doing this <laughs> and so they negotiated and let him use the rectory for his headquarters and oh. so he saved the bells but it's haunted by some of the church women and they haunt the bell tower and so if they see people who aren't supposed to be there like after dark like they say they feel like someone's staring at them like what the hell are you doing here and they'll mm-hmm. look and they'll be like these ladies in black just like looking at them like oh no what are you oh. doing get out of my church oh yikes <laughs> oh i don't know if i like that i mean pissed off church ladies are just not fun anyway no. pissed off church ladies So in 2007, supposedly this guy had a handheld video camera and he was pointing it towards the sarcophagus and he says that he saw a person there and then they just disappeared. But I couldn't find said video anywhere and I'm like, I don't know. I hate when that happens. Yeah, I couldn't find any of these photos. I was like, rip off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Give me ghosties. Give them to me. But he says that the image was a man kissing a skull on the forehead, which I'm like, I don't know. That seems a little too many details. That's way too many details. And like for you to be able to cognitively like realize that's what you're seeing. Like I don't know about that. He described it as like a shimmering apparition. But I'm like, if it's that good, why isn't it on YouTube? (laughs) Yeah. Why didn't you share it? Yeah. So in 2019, this was actually named one of the top 30 most haunted places in the United States by Condé Nast Traveler. Nice. And it was the only place in Texas to be included. 
And so the cathedral remains the heart of Catholic religious life in San Antonio. This is a very Catholic area mm-hmm. and it's involved in all the annual events. So like Fiesta, like thousands of people do Fiesta and San Antonio is so cool. Like you can go to businesses and you get little medals like Fiesta medals and you can collect them and it's just a massive party and they do things like an oyster shuck and like music and it's really cool. So they get involved with that. Over 5,000 people participate in weekend masses each week. Oh, wow. Right? Well, not right now. But not right now, but in yeah. the four times. <laughs> they have over, <laughs> over 900 baptisms. They have around 100 weddings a year, 100 funerals, and countless other services and special events that are performed each year. And they also have a Good Friday Passion Play, which oh, wow. attracts thousands of people. And then... I can't tell if they're still doing it or not. They might be because it's at night and it's outside. But they have a thing called San Antonio the Saga. And it's a 24-minute film on the history of San Antonio that is projected onto the front of the cathedral. Oh, that's like, cool. Like an art show. And it's the only tourist site in San Antonio that has a five-star rating on Yelp. You know, how can you not rate a cathedral five stars? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure somebody could figure out. Oh, I'm sure reason. someone's like, it was cold. Every time I go there, it's just, I've been like three times now, and mm-hmm. it's just, it really takes your breath away. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. Well, thank you so much. This has been so fun. I am just so excited that you joined me again, and I can't wait to have you back. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm always glad to come on and, you know, gab about something. Oh, so. yes. I want to thank Marie again for joining me. I had such an amazing time. This was such a great episode. If you want to watch the full episode with all the photos, join Patreon. That's patreon.com slash historical AF pod. And there's so many other benefits. I started adding like a giveaway every month. So I'm just giving away little stuff. Anywho, I'll also be sharing videos and audio and pictures and stuff all week long because I had to cut out so much. This was four hours long guys we just had such a good time we couldn't stop talking (laughs) so definitely keep an eye out that will be our social media historical af pod on facebook twitter and instagram all the photos will also be on social media and the website which is historicalafpodcast.com if you'd like to buy merch and they will be going on sale this week that's shop.spreadshirt.com slash historical af pod if you'd like to send a story in for the extra af episode that's historical af pod at gmail.com and and thank you for listening next week i'll be joined by the archaeology podcast coming from jerusalem guys i'm so excited and if you're on patreon we'll be recording tuesday afternoon at one o'clock central time so if you want to get in on this recording you might have to do so at work. (laughs) Time difference. Anyway, thank you guys so much. I hope you had a great Valentine's Day. I'll see you next week. Okay, bye.